All right, good morning. First Peter chapter 1. We'll be there in just a moment. Last week, we were considering the reality of turning as part of the change process, turning from the lie and leaning on the truth, uh, recognizing that behind every sin is a lie that was believed, uh, going back to the Garden of Eden and realizing this is the devil's plan. He gives us the lie, entices us to believe it, and then we pursue it. Uh, So behind every sin is a lie, and yet we are supposed to cling to the truth. Sin will enslave, but the truth is freedom. And we turn to God's truth. And we looked at a few examples, how God is great, uh, being in control. God is good in his kindness to us. God is gracious. Um, This morning, we also want to look at turning, but we want to look not at turning to the truth. We established that last week. This week, we want to recognize that we are turning away from not just lies, but from desires. So we want to see how desire is a part of this uh, change process. And so in this understanding of desire, we're going to be looking a lot at the concept of idolatry. Uh, Because idolatry... Uh, draws out of us uh, desire. We are wanting something and we're looking to something to give it to us. Um, And so we need to understand this matter of desire and worship, idolatry. Uh, Let's start in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to pick up in verse 13 in this chapter where Peter has laid a foundation of our inheritance that is sure for us in heaven through our faith. Uh, That's the the first paragraph, uh, verses 3 through 12. And then in verse 13, he adds to now that hope that is ours, an inheritance in heaven. However, in the now, we are called to be holy. Uh, The life that is lived, rooted in, the assurance of our inheritance in heaven, that life is a life of holiness. And so Peter writes under inspiration in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So that word but is a word of contrast. We look before it and we look after it and we should find two different things. Before it is these passions of your former way of life. Before you knew Christ. uh, Unbridled kind of selfish living. Um, But the contrast is after faith in Christ, which is verses 3 through 12. After faith in Christ, here's the life you're to live. A life of imitating the very holiness of God. As he is holy, you be holy. That's the standard. That's the benchmark. Then he continues. How can he make this call for you to be holy in all your conduct? Since it is written... 
And he quotes the Old Testament where God had told the people of Israel after he called them out of Egypt and said, I will be your God, you will be my people. Here's the covenant I'm establishing with you. Ultimately, he says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter continues, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And that ransom was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter's argument is, listen, if you're calling on God as your father, if you're saying you're a child of God, if you're in that family, if that's your identity, then you should bear the characteristics of your father. You should conduct yourselves with fear or reverence, and that fear or reverence is defined by that standard of holiness. You should recognize if you're calling God your father, he is holy, therefore you have to be holy. So conduct yourselves in a way that is holy. It's an intentional act of how I will live in this moment when the boss gets it wrong. How I will respond to the spouse, the friend um, that overlooked my need. In that moment, you have to choose to conduct yourself in this sense of fear. In that moment, You are governed by the holiness of God. You remember, I call him my father. If that's true, then I'm calling on God who is holy, and he tells me to be holy. He doesn't say, well, just kind of fly off the handle and see if everyone listens to you then. No, that's not what he, he says, be holy. And so it's this choice we have to make in this moment to turn away from the desires of the old way of living, and to remember I am governed now by the holiness of God. If I call him Father, I have to conduct myself in such a way that reflects that relationship. Our trouble is uh, these desires uh, rage within us. In Galatians 5, we read about the flesh warring against the spirit, and the spirit warring against the flesh so that I can't do what I want to do. If I want to sin, it's not going to be comfortable because the Spirit is warring against that. And if I want to do what's right, sometimes I don't always feel like that, and I want to do what's wrong, and there's a battle raging. And that battle is ultimately uh, who I'm going to worship. Am I going to choose to worship God, who I call my Father and see is holy, or am I going to serve and give myself to something else. We don't think of ourselves as idol worshipers. Uh, Even as uh, Matt was telling us about his trip to India, Daniel had been there and said he's seen, you know, the actual images. We've seen the pictures from Cambodia from our missionaries there and massive sculpted idols that they will worship. We don't go around America seeing that. Uh, Very rarely will you see any kind of image anywhere. Um, And yet, uh, we need to try to wrestle with an understanding of idolatry and wonder if perhaps there's some subtle idolatry even in our Christian lives. 
uh, reading through Kings and Chronicles in a Bible reading plan our family's going through, it's amazing how many of these kings get somewhat of a good summary. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, or he walked in the ways of his father David, but he did not tear down all the idols or something like that. And, and over and over again, that's the description. There's very few of the kings that don't have that blemish associated with their generally good, what we might call Christian uh, reign. And it's a good reminder that, yes, we might have it kind of together. It might be said of us, yeah, there, there's a good Christian family. But maybe there's a little bit more rooting out we could do. Uh, it was John Calvin in his Institutes who wrote, human nature is, so to speak, a perpetual factory of idols. Uh, the moment somebody says, oh, this Facebook is, is taking too much time in my life, I'm going to be done with that. Well, that's maybe a good thing. Um, but if you're not careful, you're just on to the next thing that will consume your time. Um, the, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. It's always ready to find something else, some other cause, some other, some other satisfaction, some other desire that will bring meaning to life. And, and I'm speaking even of, of believers who recognize ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose is found in Christ. Seek first the kingdom and all those other things will be added to you. Um, and yet all those other things because they are often good things, important things, uh, maybe even required things in your roles and responsibilities, pleasurable things that could be received with thanksgiving, and yet those other things oftentimes just kind of suck our attention and our energy and our time and our money uh, more than we realize. And if we're not intentional, as First Peter calls us to be, to conduct ourselves in such a way that we are reflecting the holiness of God, then it looks like we're, we're pretty good. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but he had a, a few missteps here when it came to some of his hobbies and interests because they really consumed a lot of energy. Roy? This, this actually seems like it's a, uh, a cry to take a desire which at some level is an emotional response to something and fill it with an intellectual response. But if it is an emotional tie for some legitimate need, that strikes me as insufficient to defeat this fire of emotion. <coughs> is your mind stepping into it can be sufficient to fill If there is a legitimate void, we need a legitimate fill. And an intellectual response seems insufficient to me. So, are you saying emotion is on the same par as the mind? I think your mind is going to have a hard time fighting with your emotions if there is a legitimate base feeding of that emotion. Perhaps. Uh, and the other question would be, how does the Bible define emotion? 
because you're not going to find that in any language of struggle with sin. Um, it's just going to be this word desire most often. The Old Testament word primarily for the struggle is idolatry, and the illustration is very physical there, the groves, the statues. The New Testament, we're looking at desire, which obviously could be emotion. Um, his loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting, so finding emotional, relational security. Yeah, what, what else? What? I, I was just, this is me spitballing, but delight in the Lord, find joy in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. It, it, it's important because I'm going to say it again, rejoice in the Lord, find joy in the right. Lord. That may be something uh, partial. And I don't think you're necessarily going to find a linkage in Scripture, but there's a reasoned response that I think would find us. I, I think all of us have reasoned our way past a desire only to have it come back, and the fight just never subsides. Sure. Um, if, we, if we kind of pigeonhole intellect or the mind too much, then we probably will lose the battle. Uh, but even to delight yourself in the Lord comes as an imperative, you know, to be received, understood, and, and then applied so that whatever my need is, if we called it an emotional need, a relational need, um, that need ultimately has to be fulfilled in some way that God says is holy, as opposed to us trying to find our own means to fill that void. We, we recognize void and need. We all have them, and we know people that are even more needy, and we recognize they're looking for something. They're they're looking for the identity, they're looking for the relationship, the connection, and in our, you know, in, in my growing up years, you know, the goth culture was big, and it, why? It didn't always look like the greatest style, and, and yet it gave somebody an identity. They, they found someone to connect with. They were looking for something. Uh, and so much of the gender crisis today is the same thing. It, it's, a, it's a desire to fulfill and... That, that's not going to happen in anything other than starting with God and what he gives. Um, so here, Roy's point, yeah, you're going you're gonna to talk a lot of need and, and emptiness or void, and we're talking about how that gets filled. And if we don't understand that filling and that need, then we're going to struggle to change. Um, we we got to wrestle through this. So a couple of hands, David and Daniel. Um, I was just thinking the another word to use that might help clarify um, would be like the, the affections or that heart desire, um, which is, you know, it's shaped by the intellect, it's shaped by what you know, but it's also truly drawn out of the heart. It's not something that you force yourself, I'm not going to force myself to try and desire something. It is what my heart actually does desire. Yeah, it's a, it's a deep wrestling to understand that idea of affections. When, when is it just my mind? Because we, we like to think at times this is just mental versus emotional, but we're all kind of compacted in our body and head here, and it's kind of all in there. Um, is obedience just the choice of my will, and, and there's no emotion connected to that? It, no, it's all kind of together. Uh, again, Hebrew 
with its limited vocabulary, but bigger meanings in the Old Testament, you just hear heart, and it kind of captures everything. Um, the New Testament gets, in Greek gets a little more nuanced, but it still blends words, you know. Sometimes it says spirit, sometimes it says soul, sometimes it says mind, very few times it says heart. Um, so we just have to recognize all of our person uh, is in need, and with whatever we have, we can engage in this effort to put God first, to desire him. Because let's face it, a soft answer turns away wrath, but the whole point is in that moment, you're probably feeling like being contentious. So feelings aside, they, they have to be trumped by even just stark obedience, the will that says, I will go God's way in this moment. I don't have to lord something over my child or my wife. I will yield. But can somebody say that in that moment to yield in obedience to God doesn't count because I know you didn't mean it because I know you were angry and wanted to respond in anger. No, you're, you're, you're totally looking for an excuse uh, to not be obedient. Because the reality is, Jesus says to every one of his disciples, if you love me, he doesn't say feel like it or get all flowery and relational. He says, keep my commandments. It's really simple. And Peter is saying the same thing. Be holy as God is holy. This isn't complicated. Are you going to feel like it all the time? No. Might sometimes witnessing and parenting and marriage be a pure delight? Sure. And we'd love for it to always be that way. But always being exactly as we should kind of means we're dead and off to heaven. Until then, it doesn't matter if I might not feel wholehearted about this. This is what God wants. I'm going to do it. And, and generally, generally, the pattern of Scripture is when you go God's way, you realize this really was a good idea. Um, I'm... I'm probably more of an introvert than an extrovert. So when my wife says, hey, I got this, this, and this on the calendar for people coming over, I'm like, whew, all right. But you know what? Every time it happens and every time we go to the gathering or go to the group or go to whatever, she always marvels that I come home saying, that was really good. That was, that was great. That was, it was so good to connect with those people and to hear that. And it's the same way with just obedience, when you do it, you realize that is the right way. There is blessing in going God's way. This is true worship. So wrestle with these things, but, but don't be afraid to, to just look at Scripture and see what is right and say, I'm going after that. I know I'm being drawn away by my own lust and entice, but I am going to go God's way. All right, Daniel, and then we add Brian too. Still have something, Daniel, or are we long gone? I think you're on the same path. Um, I've been kind of struck by how David has a delight in the law. Like he talks about the delight in the law mm-hmm. in, in Psalm 1-2. And then at the end of 119, there's a, there's a whole passage um, uh, starting in, in verse 169. And I won't read it all, but it's, it's literally, um, I'm delighting in, in your law. I'm singing your praises, I'm walking in your way, and then um, let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. 
it's there's no distinguishing between delighting and being emotionally connected and following and obeying God. It's, it's they're one the same, but they come out of the, the law, the, the very hard thing that we look at and say, this very archaic kind of approach to this, that was his delight, and it produced, it seems, an emotion of response to God. So I think sometimes we look at the emotion and we say, oh, it has to be this way. I think if we started with the law and understood how that was a delight, I wonder how it would change our response when we have those emotional uh, challenges. Yeah. Yeah, delighting in the law is a good good text to throw into this conversation because it also helps us realize if you're listening to me say, well, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If that feels cold to you because you're more about, I want to please the Lord and very relational and per well, great. Then hear that text, delight in the law. And if you're more on the, I just see it black and white and I should just do, well, great. See the law, delight in the law, but just know God's word to us is going to be sufficient for every personality and perspective, so to speak, that's inherent in your person, um, you will be able to worship God and not idols based on God's word. He's given us what we need. Uh, Brian, what do you want to add here for us? Well, I just, I see uh, there in verse, was it 14, um, you know, we're not Called, we're called to not conform to those evil desires that we were conforming to when we were in ignorance. So now we're not in ignorance. And if you read on, it just, I think it, you know, Peter addresses the heart motivation because we were redeemed not with perishable items, right? Just right. With perishable things, we were redeemed by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior. So because of that, redemption was such a high cost in the blood of our. Right, so look at the end of that paragraph and realize this call to holiness finds motivation when we recognize we were redeemed. We were lost and we were bought back and that purchase was the very blood of Christ. And so when we gather the worship and we sing of the cross or the blood or the saving grace of God, that's that motivation. We remember what we once were, how we've been rescued, and that motivates us in this pursuit of godliness. Yeah. Yeah. In Romans 7, 23... But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that knows my members. Does that tie into this at all? Is that just way off? No, I think so. Romans 6 and 7, um, somewhere in here I was going to mention, you, you really need to dive into a study there because it, it's, it addresses so much of the desire and the choosing. Um, because at one point you were enslaved to sin, and all your members could do, all you could do was sin. Uh, there was no righteousness you could do. Um, and so your desire was only for sin. Um, then in Romans 6 there, we see this transition because of the grace of God, the salvation that he brings. 
Uh, now we're, we're still slaves, that language is still there, we're servants, but now it's that we willingly yield ourselves to be servants to righteousness. Um, so I think Romans 6 is, is huge in this conversation. Um, and so before we even get there, or if we don't get there, hear it now, uh, Romans 6 and on in the chapter 7 are going to be really helpful in you wrestling through this, this battle with uh, desires. Uh, Jeremiah 2 helps define the sin of idolatry for us. Uh, God, through Jeremiah, says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We referenced that pursuit of the murky water in broken cisterns. Well, God describes idolatry as this twofold sin. We fail to treasure God as all we need, so we don't go to that cistern of fresh water. And secondly, we treasure something else instead. We go to the murky water. Uh, and this is the essence of idolatry, not turning to God constantly for what I need and instead thinking there will be something else. And I know most of us aren't turning to the, 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 the most base forms of satisfaction, but we're probably turning to something uh, rather than just turning to faith in what God has said, faith in who God is, we, we might find that that seems too intellectual. You may have heard people say, I know God is good and I know what you're saying, but I need something for the here and now. I need him to change something in my real physical circumstances. <laughs> An amen for that one? <laughs> But the reality is, like, we're, we're separating in our minds this God who is really just in theory and then my world of real physical problems. Um, and we got to come to this place where we recognize, no, that, that God who in our systematic theology makes promises for our good and says, I will never leave you or forsake you, says, I will work all things for good for those who love me, uh, those things have to mean something for faith in my present circumstances. I cannot, I cannot define God and his agenda by looking around and seeing if my life is perfectly ordered. That's the prosperity gospel. God is good when I have everything I could possibly want or need. But suddenly, God kind of takes a hit when the job doesn't work out or when the bills pile up or when your health fails and all these bad things happen and suddenly, if we've defined God as the one who makes life easy for me, then I've, I've lost something of God and now I'm going to find something else. And it might not be so severe that we become prosperity gospel preachers, but the reality is the devil is simply trying to undermine the fact that God is good and will take care of everything you need and he's trying to urge you to get out and do it yourself. God's holding back. Go get it for yourself. You deserve it. And so we have to be careful 
that we don't become idolaters. It's interesting in Genesis 3, the couple of words that are used to to describe the process of Adam and Eve choosing to sin, and the words that show up are good, pleasure, and desire. And all that, just looking at one rule. Are we going to break this rule that God put in place and eat of this tree or not? Well, it looks good, it looks pleasurable, and we want it. And those three words then, good, pleasure, and desire, which are not in and of themselves bad words, but those three words, when not submitted to God's agenda, God's character, God's holiness, become the path to the fall. And they become the path of our sin every day, every week, if we look to other things other than God for what is good, for what is pleasurable, and for what is desired. In essence, Eve thought a piece of fruit on a tree would give her something more than God. We have God. We, we fellowship with God in the garden. The text says he came and walked in the cool of the day with them. They were in this perfect place, in perfect harmony with God and with each other. They uh, enjoyed work in the garden as this good gift, as this fulfilling thing. And somehow a piece of fruit, good, pleasurable, desirable, was offering them something more than God himself. It makes no sense to us, and it makes no sense when we look at the crazy sins of our culture, like, I can't believe they're so desperate that they would, and we fill in the blank with whatever we see them doing. But the fact of the matter is, we, we think a day can be more fulfilled if maybe we just get everything done on our checklist and... We didn't even need to have any kind of thought or time with the Lord. We didn't need to read the Bible. We didn't need to be praying, you know, asking God for help in the day. What made us feel good was, look at everything I got done. And you, know, you might not be pursuing identity in a gender change or in multiple relationships, but you're finding identity and satisfaction in, in just checking a box on a to-do list rather than as Daniel mentioned from the Psalms, delighting in the Lord. So I think we need to be careful. It's easy to identify the the really crass idols in other people, and we might not see how easily we turn away from the fountain of living water for other things that just kind of make us feel good and get us through the day. And, And even for Christians, it can be as simple as, you know, the stuff we drink and the stuff we eat. It can be our our favorite ball team, and we kind of, the greatest thrill is having everything work out just right. And little things like, you know, you know, you got stuck talking to somebody, your neighbor out on the road, and you wanted to get in, and you missed the kickoff. And little things like that can bother us. Why? Because we, we find real satisfaction in certain things, not always in the agenda or the providence of God to ordain what's on our plates. We need to be careful that we're not saying, I don't need God as much as I need, Eve said, a piece of fruit. I don't need God as much as I need a profitable day at the office getting things done. I don't need God as much as I need 
just my kids to go in bed and stay in bed and not call from their beds, you know, at night. We, we have all these little things that we want to just like, oh, that's satisfying. That's, now I'm fulfilled. Um, beware. Uh, these desires uh, are dangerous. Remember this. You will always choose, like Eve in the garden, what you believe will bring you the most delight. Now, we could change that word delight to the most satisfaction, the most fulfillment, but you will always choose what you think brings you the most delight. Now, you're thinking like, I think that's true. Let me just give it to you in other words that carry a little more weight. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So rather than hearing it from me, hear it from Jesus. Where your treasure is, what you delight in, what you value, what you think is important, you will choose. There your heart will be. Your heart, your person will say, I want that. Why? Because that is the most valuable thing to be chosen in the moment. Adam and Eve saw a piece of fruit, and in it was built all this idea of, what boundary? Why don't you be in charge of you? Why does God have a right to be in charge of you? And all of that was built into this piece of fruit. That will give me more than what God is giving me. That has more value. I choose that. And you could argue that in a weird kind of way, because people talk this way in human relationships, well, it's, it really wasn't anything against God. I, I just wanted what the fruit offered. You've heard people say that. Well, I mean, it's really nothing personal. Well, And you're thinking, well, it feels pretty personal because it's all wrapped up in there. It's, it's wrapped up in their value system. They may not have meant to trample on you or your feelings, but they did because something was valuable and they had to get there. And so it was with Adam and Eve. They could try to say, well, it's not like we don't love God. It's just that we... No, sorry, you, you valued something else more than him. You worshiped something else more than him. So if we're going to experience change, which is what we're trying to address, you can change. Uh, sanctification. If we're going to experience change, then we have to address what's going on in the desires of the heart. Um, and, and, and even this week, in your own responses, in working on your marriage, in parenting your kids, it's going to be getting down to what was the desire? You know, so yesterday I had to venture into Walmart, and I always tell my wife, I, I just don't do Walmart on a Saturday, but we needed a wiffle ball bat. <laughs> and, you know, if it were just milk or food or something, you know, that could wait, but we needed the wiffle ball bat. Um, so we were going out to the store, and I'm walking into the little entryway, and there's a kid screaming in the shopping cart. And you kind of get used to just ignoring screaming kids, but I thought, surely his hand is like wedged in the cart, sliding little basket or something, and I should help. Nope, nothing like that. It was just, you know, typical fit unfolding there in, in the shopping cart uh, when the kid wasn't getting his way. We need to get to the root of why a child would throw that kind of a fit. 
Like, what was the desire that was not satisfied? And then you have to help them understand, well, you know what? That desire can't be satisfied, or it's not going to be right now. And there needs to be a learning that you can't indulge every desire. Um, as parents, this is our job to show our children, listen, you're like Adam and Eve, and, and you can't have every piece of fruit from every tree in the garden. You can say that's not fair. You can say, be it as it, whatever you call it. This is a boundary. And desire ran into that wall, and it got a bloody nose, but the boundary's not moving. Um, that's sometimes how parenting has to sound. Um, it's not about fulfilling every desire. It's teaching them desires have to be governed by something. And hopefully we can show them how it's governed by the instruction that God gives us, which is for our good always. So changing even just behavior then is insufficient. So I didn't hear that screaming for much longer after I walked past the cart. Somehow she appeased or changed the outward behavior with something. But changing outward behavior isn't the only answer. We have to get to the root issue. So if this week you lose it in anger with your spouse, it would be good to go back and seek forgiveness for that. But it would also be good if you figure out what caused me to show that kind of hatred to my spouse. What did I want in that moment? Why was I, why, why was I so threatened or felt like some, some desire was thwarted? What was going on that produced that behavior? Because our, our thesis is behind every sin is a lie. And now in this chapter, behind every sin is a desire. So what did I want in that moment? God wanted, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So if that didn't happen, what did I believe? What did I want? That, that's the, the, the counseling process there. Those are the questions to ask to figure out why I was such a jerk, why I was such a bad parent, why I was such a cranky employee. Why I totally ignored my neighbor and had no desire to go over and talk to him when I probably should have engaged in some bridge building. What is going on in those moments when we sin? Yeah. Uh, I forget what passage it is. Uh, I just remembered off the top of my head. It's, uh, I think it's in Acts, I believe. It's, it's the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, if I don't speak, you know, Right there, um, uh, kind of summed it up. Romans. Yeah, Romans. Sorry, yeah. I, I thought in my book yeah. for the misreference. Um, pretty powerful stuff right there. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what James is arguing. We're drawn away of our own lust and enticed, and then it tells us the end of that is ruin. And so... When you, when you taste that ruin, when you feel the sting of sin's consequence, it's good to back up in James and realize, oh, yeah, I was drawn away and enticed, tempted by my own desire. What was that desire? That's what needs to change. Pull out that taproot, and the dandelion won't grow back, at least not right there. But we have to get to that root of the heart, the desire. And in James 1, 
The reality is when I'm being drawn away and enticed, when I'm going down that path of sinful desire, empty desire, godless desire, then the only path back is repentance. We turn and uh, or turn from sin and back to God. We talked about that even last Sunday in the sermon. Repentance then is the way of life for the believer. Your your path to change this week will probably overlap with the path of repentance. Martin Luther, October 31st, 1517, did what? What's that? He nailed it. Uh, The 95 theses were posted on the castle church door at Wittenberg. Um, 95 theses, it was kind of an invitation to a friendly public conversation or debate. Uh, Didn't mean to rock the world at the time. Um, still kind of a, a good Catholic, just trying to wrestle with what he saw was a problem here with indulgences. So he's still monk, still teaching, still doing his, his work in the church, had some questions, thought he had some answers. He posts his 95 theses, the first of which reads, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, yes, repentance and faith are part of our initial conversion. When God works that miracle of salvation and we're no longer sinners but saints, we're no longer bound to sin but we're servants to righteousness, that conversion happens at when we repent and believe. But Luther's point was the whole life of the Christian is one of repentance because we are drawn away. There's this flash, there's this announcement, there's this temptation, and we turn and we see what the devil's offering, but the great hope is we always turn back and we say, no, no, I don't want that, I want this way. It's like driving down the highway and it's about lunchtime and you're like, okay, billboard says McDonald's, anyone want that? No, focus, back on the road. We turn back to driving. The next one comes up, and there's, you know, Arby's. Do you want that? And we're kind of thinking Arby's and roast beef, and, oh, that sounds good. Curly fries, right? No, we don't want that. Turn back. Keep going. You're you're drawn away. It doesn't mean sin. Sometimes we do sin, and we do repent. But a lot of times it's just the, whoa, no, 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 and it's just stay on the path. Keep looking unto Jesus. That's how you run the race. The temptations will be there, and the missteps, and the sin, and we repent. But it's a constant life of turning to Jesus, turning to the truth. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. And Jesus said this. Here's what God's word says. The devil might say it'd be great to have more intimate relationships and friendships with other women in the workplace or something, and yet the warning of Scripture is going to keep coming back and say, no, don't go down that path. Treat them like sisters, because that's, that's outside of the bounds of God's plan for ultimate happiness, one man and one woman in marriage. And so you may not sin and commit adultery, but you're going to be aware of temptations. 
and it's simply turning back to what is true. What do I know is true? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on the path. A life of continual repentance, continually turning away from anything that calls our attention away from seeking first the kingdom, doing what God tells us to do. The Bible uses even harsher language. Colossians 3, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, The flesh is going to gravitate towards those billboards, towards those exits off the ramp of holiness. And the scriptures say, put those ideas to death. Do not tolerate them in the least. You know, if you found a a little snake and weren't sure what it was, you, you probably wouldn't put it in, you know, a nice glass aquarium and let it grow to see, you know, are we going to keep this snake in the house or not? No, as it grows and takes on its full shape and color, you start realizing what it is. No, nobody does that. Put it to death. Nobody's, nobody like befriends the ants that creep into your kitchen, right? You, You take this mindset of this is war. I don't want to find ants, you know, around the sink and stuff. So you start spraying and smashing and killing and putting traps out. What, do you not like God's creatures? No, not in my kitchen, right? It's a war. We'll do that this week with desires that are drawing you away from what Peter told us, a life lived in reflection of the holiness of God. Put it to death, like show no mercy. Kill it. Every, every you know, smash every beginning of temptation like those singular ants that are coming. Sometimes I think instead of smashing the ants, I should just like wound them a little bit so they go back and tell their friends, don't come to the kitchen. If I just kill them, they're going to send a search party out to find the guy. So I'm like, that's only going to bring more. It's a war when ants come. And it's a war, the Bible says, because sin's not just coming, it's just everywhere and it's out to get us. The devil is alive and well, Ephesians 6 says, and so we need to be ready for war. And to do that, uh, we need to understand desires. Desires. There's kind of two ways this week can go for us. The path of righteousness, Psalms calls it, and you walk in it. And then there's drawn away of your own lust and enticed, and lust has conceived, brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, means the church and the pastor deals with adultery, deals with broken homes, deals with all this fallout of sin, because sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Those are the two paths this week. And we're sitting here thinking, okay, how, how do you choose the right path? How do you rein in desire so that you don't go down that path? Repentance is part of that. And then we have to understand that God is bigger and better than anything sin can offer. Again, bigger is not a great word. We might prefer the word powerful, sufficient, 
we have to remember this week that God has given us every ability. He's empowered us to choose righteousness. This is the text Jared brought up in Romans 6. You are free from sin and free to do what's right. You can do what's right. God's power is on your side to work against being drawn away. God's more powerful. The spirit is warring against the flesh. So read Romans 6 this week and be encouraged. I don't have to sin. It may feel like that sin, that besetting sin has power over me. Like it's got my number. It, it, it knows how to mess with me. But even in saying those things, you're believing something of a lie. It doesn't. It's a chihuahua with a big, loud bark and a ferocious charge at your ankle. And you can squash it with a quick step. Sin has no power over you. Believe that. God's bigger than our sinful desires and God's better than our sinful desires. Remember Eden. Is God worth more than whatever that piece of fruit is offering? Is God worth more than whatever that extra money is offering? Is God worth more than whatever the screen is offering? Is God worth more than whatever that person is offering? Is God worth more? Isaiah 55 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine, milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Why would you do that this week? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Isaiah is pleading with this people to stop trying to find something to satisfy when God is saying, I have everything you need. Now, you might not believe that. You might think you need something else. Adam and Eve thought they did, but they were wrong. That's why the Christian life is the life of faith. You have to reckon in your mind with what is really true. Will this satisfy, or is it true when God says, I will give you everything you need, and I will satisfy, and you won't even have to pay for it? It's like that woman at the well. She kept putting down a deposit on the next relationship, hoping that would be the one. And finally, she meets Jesus who says, you know, at this point in your life, surely you would understand the, the, the joy and the relief of being able to take one drink and never have to draw water again to find what is truly satisfying Do we really believe Jesus' message there at the well? I think we do believe that, yes, Jesus is everything I need, and and I know I'll get to heaven, and that'll be perfect happiness and joy. 
But Jesus says now is the abundant life, the satisfied life. Not because I look around with physical eyes and find everything is perfect and I lack nothing, but because I have Christ and his promises to me, therefore I lack nothing. The abundant life that Jesus promises us is one that is perceived and measured and experienced in faith, not just in circumstance. Is God satisfying? Is he sufficient? This gets to the heart of this matter of desire. So yes, in order to change, we need to recognize the truth and combat the lie. But in order to change, we also have to recognize how desire can be led astray and have a greater desire to put in its place. Paul, again in Romans, wrote, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. I think it's important that we have that order in our minds. We see Christ. We treasure Christ. We see the value of what he means to us, all his promises. And we indulge in that. We feast there. And now there's no room for Twinkies and junk food. We just had, we just had the meat of Christ. And, and we don't need the sugary junk of the devil. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ and there's no room for that. We delighted in him so much that I've spent all my delight. There's none left for anything else. There's a book I have on my shelf written by some, some of the friends up north. that have some churches up there. Christ Fellowship, a collection of house churches. And the book is called Delivered from Desire. It's about sexual sin and pornography. And then the word from is X'd out in bright red. And written next to it is the word by. Delivered by desire. Because if we're not careful, we'll think the process of change is, I need to be delivered from these bad desires. Well, that's kind of true. But how? How? And the answer is, by a greater desire. Remember, because where your treasure is, what you value, you'll go after. So you have to value something more than whatever that sin offers. You have to value what God offers. Do you treasure God and what he offers, or do you treasure the piece of fruit on the tree that the devil offers? Our great hope of change is to be delivered not only from desire, but by desire. So Heavenly Father, help us to put on Christ, to believe his words to us, to believe that you are good to us, that you will meet our needs. Lord, help us to be equipped to, to fight against the lies of the devil and to fight against the desires of our heart that believe those lies and long for the pleasures that were offered. May we with the eye of faith see down the path of righteousness, see that it truly does lead to blessing. May we trust you for those blessings and act from a heart of worship in our obedience this week. Lord, protect us from the wiles of the devil. Find us putting on that armor each day 
reckoning with what it means to hear your call on our lives to be holy. And may we as brothers and sisters in Christ, soldiers in arms together, uh, lift each other up in prayer and encouragement so that when one does step into sin, those who are spiritual will restore that brother or sister in a spirit of meekness. We long for this kind of help from each other in the body. Uh, uh, Lead us now together on this path of becoming more like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.